0: Kyle Rittenhouse is an 18-year-old from Antioch, Illinois, originally. He came into the national consciousness because on August 25th, 2020, he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, to respond to protests that were happening following a police shooting in that city.
1: Kim Belware is a national reporter for The Post based in Chicago.
0: While he was there, he shot three people, killing two of them, and is now on trial where he faces charges of intentional homicide and reckless homicide, as well as an unlawful weapons charge.
2: The 25th of August of last year at the city of Kenosha in this county, the defendant recklessly caused the death of Joseph D. Rosenbaum under circumstances which show utter disregard for human life.
0: It's really touched on so many of the issues that have just been in the national discourse for the past several years. It involves the justified nature of protests protests against police, protests in support of racial justice. It draws into question different attitudes about, you know, is is property damage and destruction ever justified as part of protests? It brings in questions about gun rights, gun ownership, and also disparate treatment of white versus black individuals by police. And now the question is, how all of those things
1: will affect whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse is found guilty. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 9th. Today, the Rittenhouse trial. And later in the show, the story of an Ethiopian-American teenager having tough conversations with her family about race, the second part of our series on teens in America. The trial in Wisconsin started last week, and it's focused on the minutes before and after Kyle Rittenhouse shot three protesters. The protests were over the police shooting of a young black man named Jacob Blake, and they were mostly peaceful but became more chaotic at night. So Rittenhouse, who lives in a neighboring state, went to Kenosha. He said that he wanted to protect businesses from looters and rioters.
0: So he brings an AR-15 style rifle with him. And under Wisconsin law, this is a weapon that he is too young to possess. We do know that he asked his friend, a guy named Dominic Black, to buy the gun for him. And so Rittenhouse comes and he's posted outside a business. And, uh, you know, later he's seen giving interviews on live streams and telling people that, you know, this is his, his job. He described what he was doing there as his job is to protect this property.
1: So then at what point does, quote-unquote, protecting property turn into shooting at people?
0: How the night evolves is as things get more chaotic, there are fires starting, there are shots heard. At some point, he has an altercation with Joseph Rosenbaum, who's one of the men he killed. And, you know, he turns the weapon, he shoots Rosenbaum, and then once that gets attention, he flees. Later when people in the crowd, protesters and others, spot Rittenhouse as the person who shot Rosenbaum they give chase and that's the scene that so many people have seen where you see him pursued in the street he's running away he trips and falls and then when he's on the ground he fires four more shots one of those kills a man named Anthony Huber and another injures a man named Gage Grosskreutz and then what happens after that? The scene is even more chaotic. We had Post reporters um, in the scene that day, and they described it as, as really dark. There was a lot of smoke because of tear gas, and there is just screaming and fires. I mean, really a terrifying scene. Meanwhile, Rittenhouse is walking away, and people are still yelling at the police. They're still yelling at law enforcement, you know, get this guy. That's him. He just shot someone. He just shot someone. And once he sees law enforcement, he puts his hands up. Um, it looks like he's expecting that he's going to get arrested because now he's run into officers. And instead, they wave him by.
1: Wait, so they just let him go?
0: Yeah, this is a video that really drew a lot of outrage and really gets to you know some of the polarizing part of this whole case where people are thinking if Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old black kid who had just shot three people, police would no way let him walk mm. by. Uh, we later know because officers testified on Friday that when they saw him approach, he was you know touching his gun, hands up, and they said they couldn't hear the crowd saying that he just shot people. But they also didn't think that he was behaving like somebody who was a, a shooter and he was in the way. They were trying to get to people who needed aid. So they just shoot him along.
1: So it wasn't until he turned himself in that he was then placed under arrest that otherwise police had just let
0: him get away. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, his mom thought, you know, do we do we need to go out of state? Do we need to go somewhere else? And uh, his friend Dominic Black, the one who purchased the gun, said that he's ultimately convinced Rittenhouse that the right thing to do was to go to the police and turn himself in. So he turns himself in to his local police in Antioch, which is in a different state. um, And eventually he gets extradited to Wisconsin.
1: And what has happened to him in the year plus since the shooting?
0: Given the Factors of the shooting, the fact that he was in possession of this weapon underage, he was hit with a pretty high bail, $2 million, and he raised that. He's been free, and and after one of his hearings, he's seen in a bar in Wisconsin hanging out with the Proud Boys, Mm -hmm. um, a far-right extremist group. He's seen making the OK sign, the white power sign on camera, and he's in a bar. And it sounds like he has become this kind of celebrated cause among far-right extremists. Yeah, he there's a sort of folk hero status that's sort of coalesced around him because they see him as, you know, an id of sorts. He's taken action that other people wish they could do or think that they should do. And that's what's really, um, you know, been part of the controversy over him, because there's a pretty significant part of the population who sees how this has all played out ahead of the trial and think that it's it's really emboldening some fringe figures, you know, some um, anti-black figures and, uh, you know, white supremacist figures to think, hey, if there are people who don't like racial justice protests, it's an acceptable response to go out armed in the streets. And if you shoot them, you might be able to get away with it.
1: So Rittenhouse has pleaded not guilty. What is going to be his defense in
0: court? So there's no doubt that it was Rittenhouse who shot and in some cases killed these people. The charges are focusing on his intent. Did he intentionally kill them? Did he commit murder in Wisconsin? They call it intentional homicide or reckless homicide. And so The state is contending he acted recklessly with disregard for human life and knew that his actions could cause harm or injury to somebody. And his defense is, I acted in self-defense.
3: Kyle Rittenhouse protected himself, protected his firearm so it couldn't be taken, used against him or other people from Mr. Rosenbaum who'd made threats to kill. And the other individuals who didn't see that shooting attacked him in the street like an animal.
0: And so we have a small set of facts that everybody agrees on. What they see in the video, the fact that these three men were shot and the fact that two of them are dead. But one side is saying he did this knowing full well what he was doing and that he shouldn't have done it. And the other side is saying, yes, he did kill these people. He did shoot, but he was doing it to protect himself.
3: It isn't a who done it, when did it happen or anything like that. It is, was. Kyle Rittenhouse's actions privileged under the law of self-defense. You as jurors will end up looking at it from the standpoint of a 17-year-old under the circumstances as they existed on August 25th, 2020.
1: From the people who've testified so far, what have they said to this question of what was motivating Rittenhouse
0: when he shot? People are testifying to the chaos of the night and, you know, how it was a frightening situation. The prosecution has said, despite how scary it was, there were all these other people on the scene who also had guns and who also were purportedly there for the same reasons that Rittenhouse said he was, to protect property, and they didn't shoot anybody. They didn't fire their guns.
3: The evidence will show that hundreds of people were out on the
1: street experiencing chaos and violence, and the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse.
0: The defense is saying that the chaos of the scene creates an atmosphere that any reasonable person, especially a 17-year-old, would think is a danger to them and, and it was so threatening that, of course, he would be justified.
1: But, you know, I would point out that like no one forced this 17 year old to be at this protest where he ended up being scared with an AR-15. And so, I, I mean, I guess is that part of the conversation around like why did he show up to this protest uh, with a gun in the first place?
0: Well, so much of the criticism of Rittenhouse has been why was he there? He didn't need to be. Had he never gone, we wouldn't be here today with the circumstances that we're dealing with. And it does seem like the jury is going to be asked to really narrow the scope of their decision on some circumstances that really revolve around, you know, a several seconds, you know, maybe maybe a minute worth of time in those instants when he fired those shots. Was he in reasonable fear for his life or not? And a lot of the questions that I think the prosecution would certainly like to bring in about him maybe being a vigilante or maybe going someplace he had no business. You know, those are going to be, I think, a little harder for them to get in, given how narrowly the judge wants the jury to focus on the actual moments of the shooting.
1: Have we heard from Rittenhouse during the trial um, about why he says he shot these people?
0: Rittenhouse hasn't spoken yet. Um, In opening, his lawyers did kind of suggest that he would take the stand. They didn't commit to anything hard and fast, but um, there is an expectation that we're going to hear from him. Of course, they can always make those uh, decisions last minute. But actually last year, uh, last November, when he was in detention, uh, he did speak to some of our colleagues here at The Post. And and that was really one of the few interviews that he gave before uh, his lawyers really started to put out statements on his behalf and the public stopped hearing from him directly. What did he say in that phone call? You know, When he was talking to our reporter, Bob O'Hara, you know, he was saying that he didn't regret bringing a gun. He spoke to how terrifying it was. And he said, I feel I had to protect myself. I would have died that night if I
3: didn't. Because I was going into a place where people had guns and God forbid somebody brought a gun to me and decided to shoot me. Like I like I wanted to be protected, which I ended up having to protect myself.
1: So I think for so many of us who have either seen video footage from the night of that shooting or heard the accounts of it after, I mean, it's it's galling. Right. And it seems very clear cut that this guy who shows up at a protest with an AR-15 and then shoots people there, you know, that there is some level of guilt or intentionality there. But of course, I'm not on the jury. And I'm wondering, what is your sense of what is making this challenging for prosecutors who are trying to make that case?
0: The prosecution is tasked with with proving intent. You know, they have to really have the evidence that's going to convince the jury. This definitively proves that Rittenhouse acted intentionally. You know, he acted with a mind to create trouble that he knew better. And that's just a really high burden in the law to to meet, you know, to to prove somebody's mindset. And There's so much that's been written, in particular about Rittenhouse, not only what he did that night, but the other things um, that he did before and after the shooting that has really hardened people's perceptions of him. And that seem to feed back in. And, you know, if they think that he's guilty, support this idea that, you know, he's this vigilante, that he, you know, loved cops and loved guns. And for the prosecutor, the challenge is a lot of that is just not going to be something that they can include. The jury just won't know about those things, because there are pretty strict rules that really favor the defendant, that you can't bring in information that would unfairly prejudice them. It has to meet a pretty high threshold where, you know, the informational value of of proving or clarifying a fact outweighs, you know, the kind of unfair harm, prejudicial harm it could do to the defendant.
2: Your duty will be be to decide the case solely as uh, uh, the evidence develops. Uh, presented at the trial and the law is given to you my, uh, in my instructions. Anything that you see or hear outside the courtroom is not evidence.
0: And uh, one of these pieces of evidence that the judge hasn't ruled on yet, but that has come up in a pretrial hearing is a video of Rittenhouse from several days before the shooting where he's observing what he uh, apparently believes to be looters at a CBS.
2: It looks like one of them has a weapon
0: and he's heard off camera saying that he wishes he had his AR mm-hmm. so he could shoot some rounds into these people it's oh, wow. kind of a paraphrase of that language
2: Bro, i wish i had my all right start shooting
0: And for the prosecutors, that would be a hugely important piece because it really could get to, you know, a mindset, the idea of this is how he thinks of looters. This is action that he wants to take if he sees this kind of behavior. But the judge so far, he expressed some skepticism about that argument, and he said that he's going to hold off before making a ruling. So that could be um, a really crucial ruling that if it rules against prosecutors will be a pretty big blow.
1: (laughs) So what do you think is at stake with this trial, especially, you know, as you point out, if if Rittenhouse were to be found not guilty? I mean, there are so many emotions around this. And, and what do you think it would say about Wisconsin and about the country?
0: There's a lot of concern from Rittenhouse's supporters that if he's convicted, it's going to have some kind of chilling effect on self-defense laws or gun rights, and and that's pretty unfounded because there's no way that this case is going to set any kind of precedent or really inform any future cases in Wisconsin. The more likely way it's going to have an impact is what it normalizes. You know, if he's acquitted, uh, a lot of people both just watchers of the trial, legal experts and and folks in Kenosha that I've talked to said if he does get acquitted, it's going to hand a victory to people who feel entitled or emboldened to take to the streets with firearms whenever they want to stand against some protest that they disagree with and they don't like. And in particular for racial justice protesters, that's a really scary thought.
1: Tim Belware is a national reporter for The Post. Renny Fernovsky produced this story. After the break, we continue our series with Why YR Media about teens in America, listening in as teens talk about race. I found
4: myself really beginning to identify with Black culture in America because, yeah, in, in Ethiopia, I'm just Ethiopian, but here I'm Black.
1: We'll be right back.
2: MonarchMoney.com slash podcast.
1: After George Floyd was murdered last year, 16 year old Obsi Abebe felt like she needed to do something. So she decided to go to a Black Lives Matter protest. There, I mean, there's no such thing as closure at this point, but just for some sort of like healing. Her parents tried to talk her out of it. It was in the middle of a pandemic and they were worried about her safety. But Obsi pushed back. And
4: I just really got into. Just the fact that I will either, you know, as they say, die by a virus or I will die by police brutality. So I might as well try to do something about one of those threats if I can't do anything about the other. And
1: afterwards, she thought about why it had been so hard to talk to her parents about racism.
4: Not to say that. The topic of race is hush hush in our family, but it is difficult to approach when your parents are very passionate about you feeling connected to both their culture um, from their mother country and the
1: culture that you are currently in as of the moment. Opsi was born in Ethiopia, but she and her family moved to the D.C. area when she was three. So being Ethiopian and living in America meant that Opsi also had to come to terms with what it means to be Black in America.
0: I
4: found myself really beginning to identify with Black culture in America because, yeah, in, in Ethiopia,
1: I'm just Ethiopian, but here I'm Black. According to a survey from The Post and Ipsos, more than half of teens think that racial discrimination is a major threat to them. And nearly three-fourths had a conversation about race with a parent in the last year. We've been listening in on some of those conversations in our series with YR Media, as part of a project of The Post called Teens in America. Today, we hear from Obsey about why it can be hard for Black immigrant families to talk about the threat of racism. So tell me about your parents. What brought them to the U.S.?
4: Yeah. So my father Asheber Tufa and my mother Shitaya Gebre were both born and raised in Ethiopia, but moved to America for a more stable life.
5: When we came here, we came because of make good opportunity for ourselves and for our kids. Look, you, there is not any chance that the way you get education is not the same to Bako. Yeah,
4: it's there was definitely some. Some political issues in Ethiopia that was affecting his safety and his, um, I guess what you would say, like unalienable rights, like, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness.
1: So what has it been like for your parents to come from Ethiopia to the U.S. and then be seen as Black Americans, especially if they're building a life for their family?
4: I think for my father, I know something he was telling me about was the fact that in terms of like promotions and even like the whole hiring process, there was definitely like a bunch of bias that he felt he was experiencing. My
5: profession is accountant and uh, on job recruiting, uh, when they interviewed and even by seeing my name before they see me, my, my color.
4: He has a master's in accounting and Someone else in his workplace who was white and did not have that same degree got a promotion before he ever did, even though he had been working with the company longer, was more qualified for a promotion.
5: And he don't know about the accounting, but he promoted that because of his color, they promote him.
4: For my mother, a lot of people would kind of play that like that ethnicity guessing game with her. She's really light skinned, so no one really assumes off the bat that she's from Ethiopia, let alone Africa. And and a lot of people would assume she's Latina. She's been followed around in stores because, yes, although some people may not assume she's black off the bat, they still think that because she's a person of color, um, she's more likely to do something um,
1: illegal. So, obviously, it sounds like part of what your parents are grappling with is, of course, racism in the U.S. and what it's like to be a Black person from somewhere else, but living the experience of being a Black person here. I know that you also have two sisters, so I'm wondering what has it been like for the three of you?
4: Yeah, I do. I have a younger sister and an older one, and it's been hard for all of us in different ways. My younger sister, G2, she has never been to Ethiopia, whereas my older sister, Eros, was born there and feels more connected to the Ethiopian culture. And I think this largely stems from the fact that Eros is bilingual.
6: Because I've lived here since the age of six, so I've gone to experience the best and worst of both worlds. And do you have any specific memories that you're comfortable sharing about? Yeah, um, I think in middle. it was a middle school. I had a teacher refuse to butt me up a math level uh, because they doubted my abilities. And I think it had largely to do with my race because I had very good scores in elementary school and I should have been in that bumped up math class. And I saw people from my elementary school math class who had less scores than me, but because they happened to be white, Well, I believe because they were white, they just had more confidence in them and their abilities.
4: It was something that my mother couldn't necessarily address because she would go to the schools and they would explain it, of course, in English. And she partially sometimes didn't understand, but then it was also like really condescending and she couldn't have made her Like argument in her case as fluently as she did in a mark in English. So I think it definitely was a language barrier that not only held her back, but us as well.
1: I'm so curious to hear more about what your parents think about this, because I feel like it's especially interesting for black people in America who chose to be here, right? That they wanted to come to the U.S. and I'm sure had a lot of aspirations about what life would be like here. And they've clearly tried to assimilate the best that they can. But I wonder what it's been like for them to see these things unfold and how their feelings about America have evolved.
4: Yeah. So we essentially never had like the infamous talk with our parents that not only um, children of color, but black children get about like, you know, what to do in school, especially if like a teacher starts um, talking to you in a harsh manner and what to do when you're around police and what to do in stores. We never got that from our parents. I quite literally got it from my older sister. And did they have like any, any conversation truly with you about racism in America?
6: No. But how do you feel about that? Well, I definitely wish that they would, like maybe they just, it's a hard topic for them to also talk about because they came from a country where everyone was so loving, accepting and you would leave your child with a neighbor for days and you knew they were (laughs) going to be okay and then they came to a country where you couldn't even trust your neighbor Mm -hmm. to look, to be friendly at all. I really don't think there's much that they could have done because they were still still immigrants here, they were still learning the culture themselves. It's hard to teach some like it's hard to teach something you don't know to your true, kids to true. the full like to any extent honestly.
4: I think there's this like mix of grief, but also understanding and some regret about the fact that we had to teach it to each other. I remember that one convo you and I had specifically about you know police because it was a time where the discussion of police brutality was really at its um, peak and do you remember that conversation you know when we were just talking about what we would do when we're with police and i remember it was just
6: like a late night in your bedroom and like we both left in tears (laughs) it was just sad it was so sad because i knew a lot of my um non-bipoc friends didn't didn't have have to have this kind of conversation or like didn't have to have a sit down with their younger siblings and be like don't do this when you're with me don't do this or like act like this, like, that's kind of ridiculous that I have to be having this conversation just because I don't want to lose one of my family members.
4: The grief definitely comes from the fact that, you know, we have to experience any of this at all, and we wouldn't have if we were raised in Ethiopia.
1: I'm wondering, you know, thinking back to summer of 2020. And it felt like this moment where even more, you know, families were sitting down and like talking about what they've experienced and having maybe deeper conversations than just the day-to-day conversations about racism and how it was affecting you and the people around you. And I'm wondering what your conversations were with your family about what they were thinking in the aftermath of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in that summer.
4: Leading up to that summer, I've heard my parents talk about Black Lives Matter protests and just in general, like racial justice. And it was always like in that, in that tone that was kind of um, resigned, like this is just the way America is. We just have to accept it. I remember there was this night where we were just watching the news and witnessing all the protests. Leading up to that point, I had really wanted to go to some protests and I'd even worked with some friends to help them coordinate protests locally. But it started off with me just telling my parents like I'm going. And that also got into me telling my dad like, you know, I could, you could be the next George Floyd and I could be the next Breonna Taylor. When I was talking with my parents, there was a point where I honestly just broke and asked them, do you regret it? Like, do you regret coming to this country after everything I've told you? Our larger discussions about racism in America and, of course, police brutality. And they were also upfront with me and they let me know that they didn't. And I, I would be lying to say it didn't hurt just after everything I've experienced here. If you had the choice again, would you still come here? Of course. We came here for
5: good opportunity, at least to learn. To uh, improve our life, to improve our kids' life too. So you have That's to choose why. the lesser exactly. of two evils. Yeah,
4: but do you uh, do you at least regret and, exposing and me to all of this?
5: No, I'm not regret.
4: Why?
5: If they do on you like that, I regret. If they influence it on you and um, um, like uh, discriminate from other like in, in the area, that that I regret that kinds of stuff.
4: I really had to put myself in their shoes again and see that regardless of where they are, there will always be an evil that will be threatening them and their happiness and their life. And it's just a matter of choosing the lesser evil. They were still able to find a sense of peace within the diverse communities in certain parts of America, especially um, especially in the communities that they found that you know, also had people that were immigrants.
1: What do you think are your takeaways after having all these conversations, reflecting on your family's experiences and also reflecting on your own experiences?
4: It was definitely... A reality check, in the sense that I definitely had to acknowledge some of the experiences that my parents have had, but it was still at the same time a moment for me to air out some of my own experiences in America and how that's pushed me to identify more as black. So I'm happy that at least I had that conversation with my family and it prompted me to even go back to some of those friends of mine that are also immigrant children and encourage them to try to have the same thing to give them some type of closure because I know I definitely got some closure from all of this. I mean definitely new wounds (laughs) with the whole like don't regret it thing but um, I think even in the process of getting new wounds it's so important to be able to close up the old ones that
1: have been festering for a really long time. That was 16-year-old Absi Abibi. She's one of the young journalists from YR that we're talking to in our series about teens in America. We'll have more stories from this series later this week and next. And we'd also like to hear from you. Are you a teenager thinking about the role that race plays in your life or the parent of a teen who's had to figure out how to talk to your kids about this stuff? Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to postreports at washpost.com. This piece was produced by Jordan Murray Smith and Shailen Martos. It was edited by Robin Amer and Rebecca Martin, with additional editing from Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Renita Jablonski, Emily Guskin, Scott Clement, Krissa Thompson, and Kyra Kyles. Mixing by Sean Carter. Original music by Noah Holt, Jacob Armenta, Christian Romo, and Anders Knutstad. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening.